Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to worship with you this morning. Great to see your beautiful faces. Let's hurry to the Word of God together. If you have your Bible, would you please open up to Romans chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, let me encourage you to open one up. There should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, using one of those uh, pew Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 1009. So page 1009, Romans 16, and uh, the Lord has something to say this morning. Uh, We're nearing the end of our study of Romans. Uh, We only have one Sunday left after this, so today we'll do the first half of chapter 16. Next Sunday, Don Whitney will be preaching, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to get to spend time with Don Whitney and under his instruction next weekend. The question for you is not, are you free next weekend? You're not free. You're booked up. You're hanging with me and Don Whitney next Friday night, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning. Just move stuff off. It's a huge deal that we get to host him and get to learn from him. If If your relationship with Christ needs no improvement, if your prayer life is peak, if your understanding of the word is expertise level, then you probably don't need to be with us next weekend. But I think for those people who pray deeply and read the word deeply, uh, they have a maturity that says, I want to do everything I can to improve my communion with Christ. They'll be here, and I want you to be here next weekend as well. So today, Romans 16, next Sunday, Don Whitney. The Sunday after that will be our last Sunday in the book of Romans. If you were to take a quick glance at chapter 16, you would see that it is filled with this long list of names. And so your conclusion might be, well, maybe we should have wrapped this up last week. I mean, have you seen all these names? After all the robust theology of the letter, we bring it to a close with a list of names. And there are hard names to pronounce at that. If someone were to ask you, hey, where should I start reading the Bible? I've never been much of a Bible reader. Where would you advise me to start reading? No one has ever said, start in Romans 16. You wouldn't give that advice. And at first glance, you might think that there's very little of value in Romans 16 because of all of these names, and you would be so wrong. It is a treasure in a most unlikely place, like, uh, like finding uh, money in the parking lot, like finding an incredible uh, little coffee house, or that shack that makes the best tacos in the city, that sort of treasure, that's what we have here in Romans chapter 16. There is gold in this incredible chapter. One writer said that this list of names is a reminder that Romans is written to real, ordinary Christians, not just for professional theologians. And it's fitting that this letter, which has given us so much solid doctrinal teaching, would end with an emphasis on people and on love and a reminder that humble servants of God perform all kinds of amazing ministry. And in this list of names, what we're seeing happen is Paul is giving us a portrait of the church that is made by Christ. 
We've spent all this time with this deep theology, theology in the gospel, theology in relationship to one another, and now with these real names of real people in real situations, this is the church. This is the church that Jesus is making. What kind of church is Christ making? This morning I want to show you two characteristics of the church that Christ makes, characteristics that must be true of us in our lives and in our fellowship at South Shore Baptist Church. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centria. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matters she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Good job, Cody, reading those names. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's pray and go home. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did do a little word work in the Greek so that I could put the right emphasis on the proper syllable, and so did my, did my best with that. Um, in this list of names is a treasure trove. I really think with our time this morning in this passage, uh, your heart's going to be lifted, and you and I together can say by looking at the names of Romans 16, that there's a very real church being formed here. There's characteristics in play among these names that should be true for us as well. And for the sake of our understanding and our study this morning, I, I, I want to say that this passage gives us two characteristics of the church that Jesus is making. And what are those characteristics? The first is this. Jesus makes a church where all people take action. 
What kind of church is a church that walks with Jesus, is defined by Jesus, is shaped like Jesus? It's a church where all people take action, where we have an active faith. So in verses 1 and 2, we meet Phoebe. And these two verses contain the reasons why we have long believed that Phoebe was the one who delivered Paul's letter to Rome. The reason we think that is because, first of all, he commends her to the church. Now, letters of commendation were common in the ancient world. People who were traveling in an age without access to public facilities often depended on the assistance of people they had never met. And that assistance was easier to secure if the traveler could produce a letter of introduction from someone known to the potential host. And so that's why Paul commends Phoebe to the church. She shows up. They don't know who she is. They've never heard of her, never met her. She shows up with this letter from Paul, and so Paul commends her to the church. So church in Rome, here's why you should listen to her and why you should care for her. Another reason we believe that Phoebe carried this letter is because she is from Centria. Paul says she is from this town called Centria. Uh, let me give you an idea of where this is located by showing you a map. Can I get a woohoo for the map? Never gets old. So here is uh, Italy to the west. Here is modern-day Turkey on the eastern side of the map. Right in the middle is Greece. And you see in that rectangle, Corinth is highlighted. Centria, eight miles to the east and a little bit south of Corinth. Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, and he spent years in that city doing ministry. And so he had proper access to Phoebe in this way. She lives in Centria, which is right next to Corinth. They obviously spent a lot of time together. Another reason we think Phoebe delivered this letter is because the church in Rome is instructed to welcome her and assist her. So that tells us that she's a visitor to Rome. She's not a resident. All the other names that Paul greets are people who are living in Rome. They're a part of the church. Phoebe, as a visitor, is one that uh, the church is told to care for and to meet their need. Phoebe is truly an incredible woman. Paul tells us that she's a servant of the church in her hometown. He tells us she's a benefactor of many people, including Paul. What that means is that she's a woman of financial success, and she uses her money to support the ministries of the church. She supports Paul financially, other churches financially, and then she herself becomes the courier who delivers this letter from Corinth all the way to Rome. She's an absolutely remarkable Christian woman. Now, the Christians in Rome had never met her, and yet Paul instructs them to care for her in this way. He tells them, welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever manner she may require your help. Why? Why are they to help her in this way? Well, the answer is in Paul's introduction of her in verse 1. He says, she is your sister in the Lord. This is why when they see her, they've not known her, they know nothing about her, but they know she is their sister in the faith. Therefore, they are to show her radical hospitality and to welcome her in the same way Christ has welcomed them into his family. Do you remember Paul's instructions from earlier in the letter for how Christians 
are to care for Christians. Do you remember in chapter 12, verse 10, he told the church, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. In chapter 12, verse 13, he said, share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Here in Phoebe, we have a saint in need, and she requires hospitality. In chapter 13, verse 9, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in chapter 15, verse 7, Paul said, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. So Phoebe is the church's opportunity to put into practice the very things that Paul has told them to do. Paul's not going to let them treat the things he has instructed them in as optional or forgettable. These instructions are immediately applicable for that church, and they're immediately applicable for us as well. Now, we might approach these first two verses of chapter 16 from one of two different perspectives. Your first possible perspective is you might focus on Phoebe in these verses. You may see the way Paul describes her and think, I want those things to be said of me. I want to be a servant of the church. I want to be a benefactor of many. As a businesswoman, as a businessman, I want to be someone who uses what the Lord has given me for kingdom advancement and kingdom purposes. Phoebe's character is worthy of imitation. But a second perspective we might take to these verses is we might experience these verses from the perspective of the church. We are those commanded by Paul to receive fellow believers and to practice radical, cross-shaped hospitality. Now, from either perspective, the uniting factor between them two is action. Phoebe's action uh, is, is worthy of imitation for the cause of Christ. And the church in Rome is to act for the cause of Christ. It's not enough that the church would just believe right. Their belief is foundational to their action. Some people have bad theology and they are busy doing lots of things that reflect that bad theology. And some people have good theology and yet fail to act on it. But the church that Christ is making has right theology and right practice. It's a church of action. It's Christians who carry a burden for the lost like a fire in their bones. And when we follow Jesus, we will be people of action. We will not sit quietly in our pews, just proud that our theology is proper and our doctrine is aligned. The proof of our belief, the proof of our proper theology is seen in the action we take in the power the Holy Spirit provides. Jesus is not making a church of spectators, but a church where all people take action. There's a second characteristic of the church that Christ is making in this passage and that second characteristic is this. Jesus makes a church where every person is essential. Every single person is essential to the fellowship of the church and to the mission of the church. And so in verses 3 through 16, Paul gives us a list of names of people to whom he sends greetings. 
Now remember that Paul has never visited the churches in Rome before, but still he knows Christians who are there, and some of those people he knows really well. He's come across them in other uh, places in his life. Now it's not uncommon that Paul would close one of his letters with greetings to people he knows personally in that place where the letter is being delivered. But what makes this list so unique is its sheer size. He mentions 26 different names, which is far more than any other of his letters. And why does he do this? Well, I think the function of all of these names is, first, he's trying to build a connection between himself and the church in Rome. Again, remember, they... They don't know Paul. Many of them don't know who he is or understand why he has authority. Why should they do what he says and believe what he tells them to believe? And so when he lists off these names, he's helping other believers in the church in Rome understand, I have this connection. So he's building credibility with them so that they would fall under his apostolic authority. I think another reason he gives all these names is to help the church in Rome recognize they're not alone. They belong to this much broader family of faith. The passage ends, verse 16, with Paul saying, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. So you're not just the only church in this game, Rome, but we've got churches all over. All of these churches in Christ, you're part of this much bigger family. I think every name builds a connection to Paul, builds a connection to the church at large. Now, I think it's important that we not just fly by these names and, and assume that it's just a boring list that we can uh, pay little attention to. It benefits us to look at each one of these names and to ask what we can know about them. So let's do that. In an expeditious manner, let's go through these names together. We start in verse 3 with Prisca and Aquila. We've met them already in Acts chapter 18. There they are called Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila the husband, Priscilla the wife. Prisca is the proper name. Priscilla is the diminutive form of that proper name. Paul calls her Prisca. Luke calls her Priscilla. It's like uh, it, both of them are correct. And here's what we know about them. We know that uh, they are tent makers. They are Jewish. They come from a Jewish background. They are from Rome. Rome is their hometown. They were forced out of Rome by the emperor Claudius. And they fled to Corinth, and that's where Paul met them and stayed with them for a long time. Now, Prisca and Aquila have returned back home to Rome. And Paul also mentioned in verse 5, Epinatus. He gives us an interesting detail about Epinatus. He says he's the first convert to Christ from Asia. Asia means the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. It is possible, a lot of conjecture in, the, in trying to make sense of this list of names, but here's what's possible. It's possible that Epinatus was actually converted to Christ by the ministry of Aquila and Prisca, and that he then left his hometown and traveled with them to Rome as their disciple. That could be why his name is mentioned in such close proximity to theirs. If I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is where my ears are going to perk up. Epinatus, convert to Christ. What does it mean to be a convert 
to Christ. Paul doesn't praise him because he's moral or he does more good than bad. He praises him because here's a man who heard the gospel and he turned his life to Jesus Christ so much so that he has left his hometown and he has traveled to distant Rome and there set up a life there where he is active in the life of the church in Rome. He's a convert. That that, that means that he's turned from one way of living to another way of living. He he went from trusting his own way. Look, there's no doubt Epinetus was a religious man before he heard the gospel. Everyone was religious in that world at that time. He had a religion of some sort, but he heard the gospel. And in that, he heard Christ call to him. In some way, he heard and he believed. This is what it means to be a convert to Christ. He turned from his old life of sin or his old self-righteousness, and he turned to Christ to trust in Jesus who died and rose again for his sin to be saved. So it begs the question, am I a convert to Christ? Have I turned my life to Christ, or am I just someone who's seeking to be moral, to be generally good, to pass the litmus test of what's acceptable according to our culture. The call of God on your life is a call to turn, to turn from sin, to turn from self-righteousness, to turn to the beauty, the love, the affection, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to leave your old life behind in pursuit of the life that Christ has for you. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Are you a convert to Him? If not, then today is that day. And I'd love to talk with you more after this service about what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we have Prisca and Aquila. We have Epinetus. Next, in verse 6, we have Mary. A lot of times we can tell something about people by their names. Is it a Greek name? Is it a Jewish name? Uh, Well, Mary was common in both the Greek world and the Jewish world. So it's hard to tell. Maybe she was Jewish, maybe not. We know very little about her except that we're told that she worked hard for the church in Rome. Then we meet Andronicus and Junia. Here's what we know about them. We know that they come from a Greek background. They are Jewish, so that means they're Hellenistic Jews. Uh, Andronicus and Junia married to one another. Uh, They are Paul's fellow prisoners. That's what he called them, my fellow prisoners for the sake of the gospel. So that can mean that they were imprisoned at the same time in the same prison as Paul because of their gospel work together, or more likely it means that they were imprisoned on their own at another time. They have a rap sheet. Paul has a rap sheet all for the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that Andronicus and Junia are noteworthy among the apostles. We're going to come back and revisit that at the end of this list of names. So put a little mental bookmark right there. We'll come back and do some more work in verse 7. Verse 8, Ampliatus. Likely because of his name, he's a slave or a former slave, a freed man. Paul tells us that he was his dear friend, or your translation might say beloved. Any place you see that designation, beloved or dear friend, it's Paul describing a deep relationship. He truly knows those people through and through. Urbanus, also likely a slave or a freedman, he's called a co-worker, not dearly loved, not my dear friend, but a co-worker, which probably means Paul only knows of him just by reputation. 
Stachus, we don't know anything about him other than Paul calling him his dear friend. Apelles, we know nothing about him except that he's approved in Christ, but we don't really even know what it means uh, in this sense to be approved in Christ. Next, verse 10, we have Aristobulus. Uh, actually, we have the household of Aristobulus. Now, here's where things get really interesting. When Paul sends greetings to those in the household of Aristobulus, it's possible that it means he's sending greetings to Aristobulus and everyone in his house. That would be family. That would be household servants, slaves as well. However, what seems most likely is that Aristobulus is not a believer. The fact that Paul doesn't greet him directly implies that Aristobulus was not himself a Christian. However, there were slaves in his house who were followers of Jesus Christ. Also, when we look at historical writings, the name Aristobulus is not a common name. It shows up prominently in some literature outside of the Bible, and Aristobulus was a man who was a brother to one of the Herods. He was a brother to King Herod Agrippa. The Herods were uh, a, a family that Rome gave power as governors over the regions uh, around Jerusalem and that part of the world. And so Aristobulus would have been a prominent person, a man of means, a, a man of influence. He himself, not a believer, but in his house, slaves who were followers of Jesus Christ living in Rome. Paul also greets, verse 11, Herodian. Now, the name Herodian probably means, probably means that he was a slave in service to Herod, probably Aristobulus. So he's uh, perhaps a Jew, a freedman. His name tells us he might have served one of the Herods. Maybe he served Aristobulus. And then in the same vein, verse 11, Paul greets the household of Narcissus. Again, Narcissus, not a believer, but apparently there were slaves in his house who were. In verse 12, Paul sends greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, likely slaves or former slaves, possibly because of the similarity in their names, sisters. And here's a theory that I just love. Maybe they were twins. Because of the similarity in their names, likely they were sisters, very possible they were twins. I think that is really cool to think about. They worked hard for the Lord. And then we meet Persis, also a slave or a freed woman. She's Paul's dear friend, known personally to him. She worked very hard for the cause of the church. Verse 13, Rufus. Possibly the son of Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ partway to Golgotha. We meet his two sons who are present with him on that day. His mother is also greeted, Rufus' mother, Simon's wife. Paul says, greet Rufus' mother, who was also like a mother to me. Incredible depth of relationship. And there's a story there that I want to know when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. I want to find Rufus. I want to know, what was it like on that day in Jerusalem when your dad is called by the Roman soldier to carry the cross of Christ? How did that mark him and change him? And what did that do to your, to your mom, to your family? And then how did you get to Rome? 
There's stories I want to know when we get to glory. Verse 14, we know nothing of these people. We don't know anything about them. We just know their names. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas. Verse 15, we meet Philologus and Julia. We assume because of the proximity of this male and female name that they're married to one another. Then also Paul sends greetings to Nereus and his sister. It's possible that Nereus and his sister are the children of Philologus and Julia. And then Paul also sends greetings to Olympus, a person we do not know but somehow connected to Philologus and Julia. These are the names of the 26 people that Paul knows in the church in Rome. One interpretive issue I want us to go back to is in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. I'm especially interested in the phrase, they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. If you have a different translation of the Bible, it may read differently. The ESV translates it this way, they are well known among the apostles. The King James says they are of note among the apostles. The NIV says they are outstanding among the apostles. So the question is this, what is the relationship of Andronicus and Junia to the apostles? Are they simply known to the apostles, or are they themselves apostles who are praised by Paul here in verse 7? When you and I think of the term apostle, we often think about it very rigidly as as meaning the original 12 as well as Paul. Uh, These are the men who receive a special commission from Christ, special authority from Christ, and they are eyewitnesses of Christ. A reason that we do not believe there are apostles today or the office of apostle exists today in the modern church is because of this connection to being an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. However, the term apostle is used by Paul in two far less rigid ways throughout his writing. So the first way that term apostle is used by Paul is to describe those who are traveling missionaries or messengers. This one and the same word apostle, depending on its context, is used to describe a messenger or a person who has this authority in this office. The same Greek word is used in both places. And so Paul uses the term apostle to mean messenger in several different places in his writings, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and Philippians chapter 2. But how do we know he uses it only in terms of the messenger versus the office? Well, we know because when he uses it to mean a messenger uh, or a traveling missionary, he designates who it is that is sending the person. So in Philippians chapter 2, Epaphroditus is a messenger of the church or an apostle of the church. He's sent by the church. Uh, And likewise, in other places, when Paul uses it in that way, he denotes who it is that's sending the person. So that helps us designate, uh, is this just messenger or is this the office? So what do we see in verse 7? Well, when Paul uses the term apostle here of Andronicus and Junia, he doesn't say who is sending them. Rather, he's using it in more of the formal, proper way in the office of apostle. A second way Paul uses the term apostle is, as we think of it, to describe the group of people who, like Paul himself, 
has seen the risen Christ and received this commission from Christ to take the good news of Christ to other people. Paul included himself, of course, in that list of names, but more than just himself and more than just the original 12. He definitely includes James, the brother of Jesus, who was not one of the original 12. And James also apparently is not a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. Paul also uses the term apostle in reference to Barnabas, Silvanus, and Apollos. So Paul thinks of apostles proper, commissioned by Christ, as more than just the twelve in himself. He applies that term, that office, to people outside. So then it shouldn't be surprising to us that Paul would include Andronicus and Junia with the group of apostles, perhaps as a husband-wife team who function in a way similar to Prisca and Aquila, or even in a way similar to Peter and his wife, who we meet in 1 Corinthians. So Paul also says of Andronicus and Junia that they were in Christ before me. So that means they're among the earliest Christians and, like Paul, could have seen the risen Lord and experienced that Paul considered important to apostolic qualification. So then here's our question. Was Junia, a woman, an apostle along with her husband Andronicus? Good Christian people have different opinions on this matter. Here's my opinion. Cody's opinion is, yes, Andronicus and Junia were both indeed apostles in the proper sense. In this list of names in Romans 16, Paul mentions nine different women. And it shows us that women played a vital role in the early church. Five of these women are commended by Paul for their labor in the Lord. Prisca, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and even Mary who worked hard for the church. Ministry in the early church was never confined only to men. Now sometimes, from time to time, someone will make this statement. They'll say, well, you know... Women have to step up in ministry when men aren't manly enough to do the thing that God has called them to do. Is that true in Romans 16? Does Paul chastise the church because the women are active in ministry? Does he say, I have this against you, church in Rome. Your men are weak. And so the women got to do what the men should be doing instead. That's not what we find in Romans 16 at all. Women in ministry is not the sad state of a weak church, but the glorious design of God. Someone say amen. If it's true that Junia was a proper apostle, how then can South Shore Baptist Church hold to a theological position that says the office of elder, pastor, is reserved for men? Well, the reason we hold to this position is because nothing Paul says in verse 7 or anywhere else in this passage conflicts with limitations on the office of pastor found in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2. Even if the office of apostle is open to men and women, Paul has put clear boundaries on the office of pastor-elder. And so it's proper to acknowledge the beautiful freedom of Romans 16, as well as the wise boundaries of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is improper to ignore either one out of support for one or the other. 
And so it's, both of these things are true. Andronicus and Junia, I believe, and many other conservative Bible scholars, proper scholars, believe they were apostles in the proper sense, and Paul's uh, boundaries around the office of pastor are also still held in place at the same time. We don't have to apologize. We don't have to get tricky with our interpretations or our translations. We can celebrate what God has given us here. And what has God given us? He has given us women who are powerful in the ministry, filled by the Holy Spirit, called of God, given visions and direction to serve Christ and His church. Now, in this list of 26 names, we have Christians from all kinds of walks of life. We have Christians from Jewish backgrounds, Christians from Gentile backgrounds. We have slaves, former slaves, and never slaves. We have male and female. We have married, single, and families. We have servants of powerful people, and we have people who are known and those who are anonymous. I'm willing to bet we probably even have some left-handers in that list of names. And in all of this, we see that every believer has a pivotal role to play in the life of the church and in the spread of the gospel. There is no B team when it comes to gospel work. Every believer is called by God, gifted by God, filled by God, and essential to the church. So do you think that maybe you are less valuable to the church for some reason known only to you? That maybe God made a mistake when He gave the Great Commission or He called you into His service. Maybe you could remind God, remember who you're talking to here, and then God would say, oh, my mistake, totally just overlook your right uh, to the B team with you. What, what excuse would you give as to why you are not of useful service to our Lord? Do you think you're less valuable because you're single? Or do you think you're less valuable because you, you aren't eloquent or, or educated enough? Do you think you're less valuable because you're an introvert? Do you think you're less valuable to the Lord because of some unique burden you carry, maybe a mental health challenge of some sort? Do you think you're less valuable because you are old? Or do you think you're less valuable because you've just you've messed up too much in your life? I want you to bring all of your excuses in here, every single one of them. Let's just pile them up right here at the front of the sanctuary. And then I want you to hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where our God says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Oh, the more you try to disqualify yourself, the more you qualify yourself for service in the kingdom. Ah, the more you come in puffed up and pound your chest, the less qualified you are. But the more the reasons you think you're not qualified, you're not enough, you're not A-team material. Look, you are God's varsity all the way. He didn't make a mistake when he saved you and filled you and called you. You are precisely the one God wants for his church and for his mission. We are the church God wants us to be when we have you. Every believer, essential for the church and the cause of Christ. Now, as we bring our study in Romans to a close, Paul is showing us the church that Christ is making. Real names, real people, helping us see what this looks like in real life. And what he's told us this morning is that the church Christ is making is a church where all people take action and where 
everyone is essential. We're all active. Proper theology leading to proper practice. We're all active and we're all essential to the fellowship and the mission of the church. What's the secret to being this kind of church? What's the secret to being these kinds of people? What's the secret to being someone who funds the ministries of others? Or what's the secret to being a person who leaves their home city for the cause of Christ in another? What's the secret to be a married couple who will risk their necks for the cause of Christ? Or who's willing to go to prison together for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the secret to being this type of person? It's no secret at all. This is the difference Christ makes in a person's life and in a group of people. I don't know if you saw that we got so distracted by the names and the pronunciations in here, you may have missed how Christ-soaked these 16 verses are. The relationships in this passage are defined by their connection to Christ. Did you notice the words Paul used to describe these people? He calls them sister, brother, servant, saints, benefactor, co-worker, dear friend, first convert, fellow prisoner, approved in Christ, a mother to me. When Christ defines our relationships, then these relationships bring blessings to our lives in more ways than we could ever imagine. That's the difference Jesus makes in a people and in a church. Not only that, did you notice how totally Christ-saturated these people are in their lives and in Paul's relationship to them? In verse 2, he tells us to welcome Phoebe in the Lord. There's Jesus. In verse 3, Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, Epinatus, the first convert to Christ. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, in Christ before me. Verse 8, Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Verse 9, Urbanus, my co-worker in Christ. Verse 10, Apellus, approved in Christ. Verse 11, household of Narcissus in the Lord. Verse 12, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis who have worked very hard in the Lord. Verse 13, Rufus chosen in the Lord. Verse 16, Paul sends greetings from all the churches of Christ. This is the way a person who is drenched in Christ relates to other Christ-drenched people in their lives. What a difference Jesus makes in a people. And what a difference Jesus is making in our lives, our homes, in our church. May it be said of us, that we who are approved by Christ work hard for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture, for these names. Oh, it tells us that you know our name. Before we know you, you know our name. You know the depths of us. You know our sin, our rebellion, our hard-heartedness. You know all these things. And yet what love you've shown us in Jesus Christ, who took our sin on himself at the cross, rose from the dead after three days, and promises eternal life to all those who come to him by faith. Thank you that that's the testimony of so many of my brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you that it can be said of us that we are beloved to one another. We are co-workers together. We are accepted by Christ. We are in Christ together. Lord, let our fellowship, our relationships reflect our nearness. 
to our Savior. Let us be a church where our belief leads to right action. Let us be a church where every person is valued. Father, let us be a church built on your word. So we praise you for knowing us, for calling us, for filling us, for shaping us. And Lord, use us to glorify your name here, just as you did in Rome, just as you did in Corinth, just as you did in Centria, just as you did then. Lord, do it again today. Do it now and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.